Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to A King's Reign. I am the host of this series, Andrew Schlecht. LeBron James has a larger-than-life impact in almost every possible way. Some people take over a room when they walk inside. Their presence is so magnetic. Well, for LeBron, he takes over an entire city when he changes teams. Everything was heightened, so you raise the expectations to a place where this team is being covered unlike any in my lifetime. This is Dan Lebetard, founder of Metal Arc Media and a longtime media personality based in Miami. Just in intensity, in initial hatred, initial laughing at failure. Dan joined our Zach Harper to discuss how LeBron joining the Heat changed the perception of Miami both inside and outside South Florida. But of course... LeBron's first season in Miami did not end in the exact way that LeBron himself predicted. Not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven. And and when I say that, I really believe it. Dave DeFore and Tim Cato have a special look at the 2011 NBA Finals when the Dallas Mavericks shocked the Miami Heat. To start us off, here is Zach Harper and Dan Lebetard. Dan, the Miami sports scene reputation prior to LeBron getting there, because as someone on the West Coast and, you know, not really that versed in what Miami was as a culture or as a sports culture, I found it odd that people hated the city because I just personally didn't think of the city as New Yorkers do, as East Coasters do. So what would you say the reputation of Miami as a sports city was prior to LeBron signing there? Bad sports fans, indifferent sports fans, bandwagon sports fans that had been surrounded by a lot of losing. And I don't know how much of that has to do with, and people never like this part of it, that uh, Dade County is one of the few counties in the United States that is a majority minorities. So you've got a whole lot of brown, black a lot of different cultures that are uh, loud. So when the group of people who had been profoundly indifferent got around the shiny thing that everyone envied uh, because we do big sparkly things well, we don't do a lot of losing well, we don't do a lot of loyalty well, we are a bejeweled dumpster in many different ways, but the bandwagon and the giant celebration, we do well. So a whole lot of people like my father emerged from the shadows to be loudly pro-heat with the sentiment, do not question my loyalty. I have been a Heat fan for as long as LeBron James has been in Miami. So so the decision comes in the WWE-style 
celebration happens. And so that must have just played in perfectly to that idea, right? Like no one cares then, oh, we've, let's throw a parade because LeBron's here and, he, and they haven't won anything yet. Big, loud, obnoxious, silly, famous. I mean, those are all the things Miami uh, loves to be. And now you had a sports team. I, I know all sports team like, like to do the us against the world thing, but you had a sports team what, that was the most polarizing thing in sports. So it was vibrating, interesting at every turn. And you remember how it started. They start nine and eight, and all 17 of those games seem to matter an unreasonable amount. Looking back, did the nine and eight, because I know nationally the nine and eight was just something that everyone relished, right? It was perfect. If they had gone out there and gone 16 and one, oh, this is boring. But there's controversy to start, right? In the city itself, was there panic or was there the sense of, nah, it's going to get figured out? Everything was heightened. So you raise the expectations to a place where this team is being covered, unlike any in my lifetime, just in intensity, in initial hatred, initial laughing at failure, having people care and care that this thing lose and be embarrassed. Uh, yeah, it was shook. Like in within 17 games, you had LeBron James wanting to fire his coach, like bumping Eric Spolstra coming uh, off the court during a timeout. Like, yeah, 17 games in. It wasn't in any way reasonable. It was totally insane where the expectations immediately got ratcheted up to. So when did it calm down in terms of that season? Like, I, I don't need like a game 53. It was good. Like, but it was, was it calm by the time the playoffs started or did it, did they actually need to win the title before the city was like, okay, we're, we're good. No, it was never calm until two years, you know, two years into the project is, I mean, they were playing for the blueprint in Boston in the, in the second season because, um, I would say that the, the Heat fans got excited when the Chicago Bulls were eliminated in five games, but that took like a magical comeback at the end. And that team was, a, that Bulls team was feared yeah. around here because they won 60 games and Derrick Rose was the MVP and they couldn't beat the, the Bulls during the regular season. And one of the Heat players said to be LeBron after a regular season loss was crying in the locker room after the loss. Um, in terms of the the rabidness of of the fans, now Heat fans are very aggressive, right? They're very aggressive as an online community, and maybe you know maybe that lower level at games isn't always packed, but the upper level, at least in my experience when I've been there, the upper level is is pretty crazy for big games, right? Um, has, was that rabidness there before? I mean, you mentioned it's kind of a it kind of got viewed as a bandwagon city, but. Before that, was that was that pocket still there? Or did it not exist because social media wasn't a thing? But not like that. Not like that, where you're waiting around for anything that Rick Buecher was saying on some radio station somewhere, because any media member who said anything about the Miami Heat then said the thing, and it can be, you know, an army of Miami loud zombies rushing toward um, you know, whoever it was that dared criticize this holy thing that we started celebrating and worshiping three minutes earlier. I don't think he could have used a better name than Rick Buecher there. That's, that's, uh, that's perfect. 
I mean, I remember they would get so mad. Rick Buecher said something about questioning the heat, and, and, and Rick Buecher would end up getting dragged for days in Miami because uh, Miami cared unreasonably about the analysis of Rick Buecher. How did, how did, I mean, your show has always been your show, but how did it change like sports radio and sports coverage there? Obviously the heat index pops up and that's a brand new thing, but was it, was it confidence? Was it bravado? Was it, was it questioning what all this was? Because it's a, a, a giant thing has now been thrown into your city. Zach, imagine that you go through your entire life as the unpopular loser, because if you're someone who grew up in the time when Dwayne Wade was drafted, I think I have these stats right, that when Dwayne Wade was drafted, I believe that the Marlins and all the time after that in Wade's career didn't win a playoff series while Wade was playing. I believe the Dolphins did not win a playoff game, and I believe the Hockey Panthers either didn't win a playoff game or win a playoff series. You're talking about the better part of 15 or 16 years. So you've got an entire generation of kids where Dwayne Wade is the only thing they associate with winning, but it's not polarizing unpopular winning. I mean, people complained about the officiating, but Shaq was here. It wasn't a team that was hated. And then immediately what ends up happening is this insecure sports city, a generation of which has done nothing but lose around everything except basketball, gets the parade before the season starts because everyone knows they have the three best players. So it leads to all sorts of unearned swaggering and right. and like the extra loudness on steroids. Miami's already way too loud and flamboyant, but now you give them the bully and you send them into the fight. Uh, it's more fun than sports has ever been in this city. So as... Uh as my timing usually is, uh, I moved to Miami for about a year and a half and I moved there in May of 2014, which uh, couldn't have been better timing for covering basketball in Miami. Uh, and I remember, I think it was about nine or 10 days of everyone being held hostage as we waited for LeBron's next decision, right? What do you remember about that time? Was it still confidence? Like, nah, they're going to figure this out or the longer it goes on, the more worried you get as a city. Evaporating confidence, yes. When you realize that, well, Josh McRoberts and Danny Granger aren't going to be the pieces that make LeBron James stay here, and now the Miami Heat fall off the cliff precipitously in terms of national relevance and interest instantaneously because... Uh, yeah, they felt betrayed. Miami got him, lost him the same way that Miami got him, and you're only allowed to be so surprised, but you can feel equally betrayed because they did. They loved that thing, and they protected that thing, and they defended that thing for four years against all comers. And so when LeBron blew it apart with what seemed like not a lot of warning to Pat Riley or others, yeah, there was a, there was a feeling of anger, but... Then all of Miami went back to windsurfing. <laughs> I do remember. I can't figure out what was dumber. Us tracking a private plane of Dan Gilbert's or tracking where Eric Spolstra was having brunch in the city because, well, not, he's not talking to LeBron. He's not, he's not a part of this conversation. So what could be worse? Jorge Sedano 
was in LeBron's neighborhood screaming into a phone line about moving trucks. It was that's, a that's totally a, that's unreasonable time. It was, it was, <laughs> there was a moving truck in LeBron's neighborhood. It was reported as we chased uh, Dan Gilbert's planes around, but it turned out that all that reporting ended up being right. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how is it how is it that miami can be blindsided but I, but I by love, LeBron leaving when there's a moving truck in front of his house because dan he's just taking those cars for the summer yes, that's, that's how you right. do it you're not gonna leave those cars behind you need those cars for the summer um uh, i'll i'll leave you on this i appreciate the time um since then miami has obviously been been chasing this this winning culture in terms of championship form have gotten close with the finals and Eastern conference finals, but the fan base in the city itself, does it still embrace the heat? Like, did it change the way that the heat are embraced going forward or, or is there something missing? What it did was build a generation of sports fans united through fire, the way, that sports gets hand-me-down from generations where we've got a whole bunch of young people in this town who just associate the heat and only the heat with regional feel-good that I can take pride in in sports. There's nothing else this century, Zach. Like, I know 2003 Marlins won a title, but the Heat have done all the winning in this town. And that particular period was such a, uh, you know, heat, heat fan, Miami fans, Miami people tend to behave pretty spoiled, entitled anyway, if I'm generalizing. But that made them feel entitled to a higher plane of living in sports. And so anything that comes after it, anything, there's not a thing that I can imagine will exist in my lifetime that won't pale in the face of that, because I don't think it'll ever be that again. Last one. Let's say the Heat win a title the next two years with this this group. Do you think it ends up meaning more than the other titles to the city? Because it would kind of be a validation of like, no, Miami did this. It wasn't just we had LeBron or Wade. Oh, but the Miami ethos of it's nice to be excellent, but I can be excellent and famous too. I can be excellent in something that has a legacy that echoes because it made people feel on the high end and low end, see uh, the shining sea, uh, deep feelings about sports. Uh, I don't think it will end up feeling like more. I don't think it will ever rise to that kind of interest level because there will be nothing outside of the borders of Miami that's ever hated that way that would require the kind of defense uh, that that required for four years, four years trying to defend this thing they had just in inherited, this adopted son. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. I know I'm looking outside right now. Sun's out. Birds are chirping. It's time to start getting outside. Uh, I know that I like to get outside and play basketball with my kids, and honestly, I need to get into a fitness routine in order to keep up with these guys, and Peloton is there for me. Peloton's varying class links were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout, whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class, or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals. Peloton's classes were made to challenge you. There are a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, full body strength, or marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you're already excelling in. Peloton's program and instruction push you to be your best. Their expert coaches and nonstop vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run indoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Before you dive back in, we want to let you know that you can unlock tomorrow's episode today and enjoy this entire series ad-free with a subscription to The Athletic Audio Plus. Unlock that now for just 99 cents a month by clicking subscribe at the top of the Athletic NBA Show's show page on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the rest of A King's Reign. Thanks for listening to A King's Reign. Here now are Dave DeFore and Tim Cato on the 2011 NBA Finals. Does it bother you that so many people are happy to see you fail? Absolutely not. Because at the end of the day, um, all the people that was rooting on me to fail, um, you know, at the end of the day, they got to wake up tomorrow, have the same life that they had um, before they woke up today. You know, they got the same personal problems that they had today. You know, and I'm going to continue to live the way I want to live and continue to do the things that I want to do uh, with me and my family and be happy with that. So, um, you know, they can get a few days or a few months or whatever the case may be on uh, being happy about um, not only myself, um, but the Miami Heat not accomplishing their goal, but, you know, they got to get back to the real world at some point. There's an image I always remember when I think of the 2011 finals. It's the Dallas Mavericks logo, a horse, but the blue and the white have been replaced with navy, burgundy, and gold. Where the logo should say Mavs, it says Cavs. Beneath it, there are three words, defeat, pure, evil. When the Dallas Mavericks beat the Miami Heat in 2011, the franchise's first championship, they were seen as likable underdogs. But there was more to it than that. The stakes of that series were morality. It was described as a clash of right and wrong. 
and while Cavaliers fans might have led the charge. After all, rebranding their entire personas as temporary fans of the Mavericks, it felt like the whole world was with them, or at least, against the Miami Heat. I'm Tim Cato from The Athletic, and I started writing about the Mavericks that championship season. In this chapter of A King's Reign, Dave Dufour and I will tell you this story about how the Mavs, for one postseason, became representatives of everything that was seen as just and holy in the sport itself. Uh, I couldn't get in a rhythm today for some reason, but the team carried me uh, all night long. They were great. Jet came out aggressive, uh, really took over the game early. JJ was phenomenal. And, uh, I gotta, I gotta give it up to the fellas. They were, they were unbelievable tonight. It really carried me to this win. Dave, where were you in 2011? I was coaching basketball in Germany in 2011. I just moved there and was getting to know the place. And Dirk Nowitzki was Hasselhoffian in stature. Between the players I worked with, my neighbors, and the guys at the pub, it seemed like. All anyone wanted to talk about was Dirk and the Mavericks. But it seemed like things were a bit different in the States. In Germany, they were very obviously rooting for Dirk. Here, it seemed like the collective consciousness was very anti-Heat. And specifically, very anti-LeBron James. We love a good hero and villain story, especially in sports. And this one couldn't have been written any better. So Dave, I was at a church camp when the Mavs won Game 6. They didn't have any televisions, and I remember having to use my parents' internet to look up the score. My dad usually scolded me since uh, that cost money, but I think this time he understood it. I was one of those kids who had made my entire identity sports fandom, and yeah, I lost that over time as it became my career, but those emotions were alive and well at the time. I'm sure back then I was proudly saying how much I hated the Miami Heat, and it was completely normal. We all felt that way. LeBron wasn't just the biggest villain in the series. He wasn't just the biggest villain in the NBA. LeBron James in June of 2011 might have been the biggest villain in sports. This series was a culmination of a year-long Miami Heat heel tour, from LeBron's decision to take his talents to South Beach, to the introductory parade, to the run to the finals. The Miami Heat seemingly leaned into their roles as antagonists. And on the other side, you had the old gunslinger Dirk Nowitzki with an opportunity to redeem himself for his previous finals loss to the Heat and a ragtag group of underdogs and old dudes trying to get a ring before it was all over. We'll soon see that not everybody on the Mavericks believed that underdog narrative, that it might not have been right at all. This chapter has three more voices. Jeff Skin Wade, a Mavericks announcer who has been a longtime and well-known sports radio voice in the Dallas area. We also have two players from that championship team, Karan Butler and Sean Marion. And it was their recollections that helped remind us how the series was viewed at the time. The public <laughs> narratives yeah. were that we was underdogs. And now here's Jeff Skin Wade with his thoughts. I really think it had more to do with the Heat than it did the Mavericks. I just think there was a perception yeah. that the Heat were too talented to lose. And here's Sean Marion to expound on that idea a little bit. Well, why is that though? That's because the media created this. They created this, this 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 story, and we soak it up. You know, this they always pick favorites. They got they have to pick a favorite. You know, they got to pick a side. So that's the that's the sad part about that. Because at the end of the day, go look at the go look at who we beat. Every series in that in that playoff round, we was we was picked to lose. Like who the hell picking these series? Do y'all know anything about basketball? I just don't think people believed in the Mavericks 
anymore in a way that they should. I mean, if you look at that team, I believe they were third in the conference that year. I mean, that's a legitimate yes. team, right? It's just there was so much feeling that, all right, the Lakers have Kobe and, and blah, blah, blah. But the Mavericks were a really good team. And I think that once Karan Butler got hurt, I think people probably gave up a little. I love this. Cause I'm gonna, I, I got to shout out my boy Karan because I feel like he tore his meniscus. He tore his knee, kneecap, yeah. kneecap off. Man, he had to get that thing. It was disgusting. For him to, to go through the rehab the way he did, to get himself back, just to be able to, to get him down the floor still and, and, and practice a little bit, even though he couldn't play, but he still was a big part of us preparing us for the for the matchups he did because he was playing in practice and he was going, yes, he was helping the scout team. It's funny because, it, you know, in hindsight, you look at it, and this is pre-three-point bombing league, and they really were a very well-put-together team. Think about that. All the all the teams that won championships have have a have pretty much a, de- a decent bench. Or a few guys that come off the bench that are able to, get to, to to provide solid minutes. Those other guys showed up when they needed to in in certain games. And your role players, you need your role players to win, especially in the seven game series. You need them to win one game. Your starters should be able to do that. But your role players need to win that one game. Sometimes they're able to win one, two games, yeah. depending on the team and the makeup of guys. And um, we had a deep bench, man. We had a we had a hell of a team, man. And all everybody, man, everybody was locked in. And one of my favorite phrases is uh, Greg Popovich saying that we like to draft guys that have gotten over themselves. Dude, at that point in their career, Jason Kidd, Tyson Chandler, who probably was born having gotten over himself, Sean Marion, all those guys had gotten over themselves, right? And they were all in the exact right point in their career to uh, it's more than just you know supplement or augment dirt they all had extraordinary roles but when that is the head of your snake it's pretty extraordinary you know he's a hall of famer sixth all-time leading scorer redefine the game all those things that's a pretty badass lead dog and all those veteran dudes knew it Certain feelings like that don't come all the time. You know when you have that that little that little it's a little aura you feel in the essence floating around in the locker room when you walk in like what you about you about to do something special. And we knew that. We had it. We knew it. We sensed it. We sensed it. We sensed it. We actually sensed it after the Portland series. It was it was learning. And it started getting it started getting that smell and that aroma started getting stronger and stronger. Like seriously. And like yeah. We swept, we swept the Lakers. Then we beat uh, OKC 4-1. You know, people don't want to give us our credit. And, and like, the Dirk, Dirk had a hell of a run. But, like, dude, like, this is Port and Cavs. It's fucking awesome as well. It was clear from day one that this Dallas team was pretty good. They came out of the gate at a full sprint to start the season. They started that season 24-5. and But the narratives around them were still based around those playoff failures from the past. Whatever chance they had to change that to make people begin to trust them again was lost when Dirk got injured in that 24th win. They went 2-7 and seven without him, and Karan Butler was lost for the season on New Year's Day. Things spiraled for a minute after that, and once they got it going again, no one really noticed. But that early season start, man, it, it stands out when you really look back on it. They beat the Miami Heat twice, in fact. Remember, during the early months of the Heatles, it was pretty rocky at times. Do you remember the moment where LeBron James knocked the clipboard out of Eric Spolscher's hands? That clipboard incident was in a loss to the Mavericks. It should have been a sign about how good this team was, what might be destined. But instead, they were given that underdog narrative that we've established. 
It's funny because the Mavericks still won 57 games in the regular season. That was only one fewer than the Miami Heat. So on paper, this really was a fairly even matchup. But the narrative had already been set. Following a year-long campaign built on hating the Miami Heat, we had a matchup of good versus evil. And after all, Tim, the Heatles told us how many titles they were going to win. So this was a foregone conclusion. Best player, best team, done deal. And by the time we got to the fourth quarter of Game 2 in the NBA Finals, it felt like Miami was going to waltz to a championship. The Heat were up 17 in that fourth quarter, and it certainly looked like that. That they were marching to a 2-0 series lead, and almost certainly a series victory. Then everything changed. Dirk Nowitzki and Jason Terry led one of the most legendary comebacks in Finals history. And the Mavericks shocked the world, and then they won the damn thing. There was very much a... I think even in the entire sports world, except for the front-runner posse, everyone was pulling for the Mavericks because think how cocky the Heat were to behave in the way that they behaved to start that mini avalanche at the back half of the fourth quarter. That's really incredible stuff. You know, coming into the series, with me being out um, with my patella rupture and just they were they were the favorite, and we just felt like... Um, we was just hoping that he wasn't ready, LeBron. LeBron wasn't. We was just hoping that LeBron wasn't ready and that, you know, uh, the narrative around him is that they put so much pressure on this big three winning right now the first year assembled and that they wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, conquer that giant, conquer that beast. I honestly did not think going into the finals that they were going to win the finals. I thought, okay, this is an incredible run for the Mavericks, but man, LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, these guys ain't going to lose. Uh, and then, you know, I think the, the, the comeback in game two just felt so extraordinary. I mean, dude, think about what people were feeling like early in the fourth quarter of game two, right? I mean, it did not feel like the Mavericks were going to win a title. And then that little sliver was there. And because the Mavericks had kept showing that they weren't going to be denied and they had the right demeanor, I think that allowed people to have hope. No, man, they was just like anybody else. They put their shoes on one, one shoe at a time, just like us. Well, we, we, we feel like we, we, anybody we played that we was going to be. It didn't matter who was in front of us. And and don't get me wrong, the stage, the stage that finals is is, is is glorious. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's magnified. And, like, when the first couple, few games, I ain't going to lie to you, I think everybody was kind of stage shocked uh, to a certain degree, a little, just a little bit, maybe just a little bit. But when we woke up, you saw the, you saw the Mavericks go and win and close that thing out. So, like, I had friends come and tell me, like, no, y'all going to go to game seven. I'm like, what? I'm like, I was like, what, dude? Like, it's no knock against nobody, though. Like, it's just all about us. Like, like we we got so people get caught up in names more than playing the game, and there's nothing wrong with that. So that's part of it, though. But we know what we was capable of doing, how we was able to do it, and we we we, we knew what we, we had it. We know what we wanted to do, and we were gonna close it out. It didn't matter who was out there. Inside our close knit group we right. felt like we was the favorites mm-hmm. like we never felt that way uh, even from the beginning of the season during training camp when Jason Terry went and got the trophy tatted on his bicep it was like we're going to win it all like right. that's just that's just how we felt oh did y'all hear me call I think I'm sick 
This weather, man. Weather is crazy. It's hard to go from 85 degree weather, man, go to 90. It's hard to believe in hindsight because Dirk Nowitzki is now considered an all-time great, unquestionably. But in 2011, there were still a lot of questions about Dirk and specifically his ability to win a title. You remember what was said about him. He was soft, he was a jump shooter, and you can't win that way. He was a choker, he was European. He had lost to an eight seed as a number one. He had lost to the Heat in a previous final. And then on the other side, there was LeBron James, the best player in the league, whose championships seemed predestined. Yeah, he might have been hated, but he was also seen as an unstoppable force, especially with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh as his co-stars. Those were the stakes of the series, and it took Dirk and the Mavericks winning the championship to finally rewrite, perhaps correctly, those narratives. Here's Jeff Wade to talk about the Mavericks locker room's self-belief and belief in Dirk Nowitzki. I think it's real important to note that the sports talking heads and the fans had a different opinion than the players in the league. Like the dudes in the league, they knew. And you know what's so funny is, and I actually sent this to Dirk when I saw it, like I guess it was a year and a half ago. It was a little video clip of David West talking about the hardest guy he ever had to cover was Dirk. And there was this perception that West didn't respect Dirk and all this. I mean, that's a projection for warriors in battle to project. But those dudes that had to cover him, they know. They know how great he is. And so that narrative, one, was, I think, fueled by cheap, uh, you know, irrational stereotypes and perceptions. I'm 43 years old. I'm a basketball junkie. Um, I do this because I love it, not because I have to. Um, that 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 moment where you see a player that's disconnected to his passion and his why and whatever it is he's connected to it, you see it in every championship run, and they just will it. Um, and I felt it in real time. I can't describe whatever it was, but I saw it in real time with Dirk. I saw the connection. I saw that he just imposed his will on that series, and he would just not let us win uh, lose. Oh, shit. They just went on a 10-2 run or whatever. It was just like, Dirk, Dirk, Dirk. What is Dirk's legacy without the 2011 championship? It's different. It's worse. He would have been a scorer who never won, just another jump shooter before they were considered revolutionaries. He'd be respected, of course. But he might not be viewed so clearly as one of the greatest players ever, as he deserves to be. In winning that title and solidifying his legacy, he delayed LeBron's first championship by a year. There's an argument to be made that his finals loss was a good thing for LeBron James and the Miami Heat. He went to the drawing board and the Heat came back a more connected and dominant team next season. We don't really know what would have happened if Miami would have held on to that Game 2 lead. But we do know that the Heat's Big 3 have spoken about how important that finals defeat was to help them establish hierarchy and roles that led to them winning each of the next two years. Here's Karan Butler once again on the lessons learned for LeBron and the Heat. I think Dwayne had said it publicly the best that, you know, this was still, he was still Batman of that group and the reins wasn't passed along yet. But I think once going through that adversity, losing to us, where they was able to take a trip with each other and say, look, I need you to be the guy and we're going to ride your wave. And then 
I'll be B and or you know whatever the case may be the pecking order was aligned and from that moment on you saw them just you know accomplish greatness losing to that Maverick team was great for LeBron you know what I'm saying it, it I think it helped him he's obviously a savant but it helped him approach the game differently understand the game differently and understand himself differently that was a really good humbling loss for LeBron James to lose not only to a team that everyone you know that was as you said an, an underdog at least from a betting terms and those kinds of things and a talent standpoint uh, but man that that did probably wonders for LeBron to understand you know what it takes to win and how he had to assert himself as we've revisited 2011 it's been a shock to view LeBron the villain with fresh eyes he's now universally regarded as a good guy between his charitable works I promise schools winning titles with three different organizations and being considered one of the two or three best players ever 2011 feels like a million years ago he really went from the most hated athlete in America to a goofy dad who posts too much on Instagram when he's drinking wine. He's a family man now, living out his near-retirement years in Los Angeles, attending his son's basketball games. Some people still dislike him, and for some people, he won't ever be as good as Jordan. But everybody respects him now. He was demonized for the decision, for the television event, for leaving Cleveland for Miami. And this series was the culmination of that collective sports hate and angst. LeBron had been built into the biggest villain, and Dirk Nowitzki was a perfect hero to face him. While Dirk and LeBron didn't have some sort of historic rivalry, this wasn't bird and magic, but it was a perfect episode of basketball good versus basketball evil. It's true that we use narratives, right or wrong, fair or not, to understand sports, to contextualize them, to make them make sense. The most common narrative might be the hero's journey that makes everything that happens to them seem like destiny. And yes, in every hero's arc, there's a villain. But we forget that every villain needs a hero too. LeBron and Dirk, two of the sport's greatest players, are part of each other's stories. And I think that's beautiful. Thank you for listening to A King's Reign. In the next episode, the harsh, never-ending spotlight of coaching LeBron. I already had an expectation that there was going to be some kind of change. I was hoping it wasn't going to be me, you know, but it was going to be uh, much, a much more committed uh, attempt to try to compete for a title. There's no way any of us could have anticipated this. An exclusive interview by David Aldridge with Eric Spolstra on coaching the Big Three Heat. Rob Peterson is the editorial supervisor and creator of A King's Reign. Joe Varden is the consulting producer. Kent Garrison is the theme music composer. Reporting for the series was provided by the Athletic NBA staff. Andrew Schlecht is the host of the series. Matt Havia and Mike Smeltz are the executive producers.